I'm going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 22. This is the entirety of Samuel's uh, chapter 8. I want you to listen as I read for what happens to them as they reject God. I want you to listen for the consequences that are spoken to them from Samuel about their desire for an earthly king. Verse 1, 1 Samuel 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And Samuel said, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I know not everyone present this morning was here last week when I preached from 1 Samuel 7 on repentance. And I want to start for a moment just with a recap. Repentance is a word that means change. Most of us are not fond of the word. We think it sounds religious, it sounds dark, it sounds full of shame, regret. And so we don't really want to use it, especially around others who might not believe in Christ. But we need to be careful to not get rid of words that are very biblical and actually are life-giving and beautiful. Repent means nothing more than turning 
turning away from something that has promised us life. It's a lie, it's a deception, but it has revealed itself as life-giving. And when the Spirit of God reveals to us that is wrong, we turn away from that, but we turn towards something, or better said, someone, and that is Christ. That is what repentance means. And so it's a, it's a picture of dying to something that will actually kill us and moving us towards that which will give life. That's all it means. And last week in chapter 7, we saw Israel essentially coming to the end of themselves and Samuel saying to them as he's leading them, if you are ready to return to the Lord with all your heart, then, and he calls them to repent. And they do. They had contrition. Their mind intellectually understood what was wrong. Their hearts felt that they had sinned against God. And then we're told that they got rid of the idols they were worshiping. Those small gods, those false gods. So repentance we saw is, is there's an intellectual part of it. There's a heart part of it. But true repentance hasn't happened until there is something volitional. In other words, action has taken place. And I told you a powerful story of a young boy who was struggling with looking at things on his phone that he shouldn't have been looking at. Intellectually, he knew he shouldn't be looking at them. He knew the first time he looked at it, he shouldn't be looking at it. But over time, that compulsion, maybe even an addiction, had grabbed hold of him. He was enslaved to it. And meeting with his youth pastor across the table, just talking about life, this youth pastor named Adam said, tell me what's going on. And he confessed his sin. Confession doesn't mean repentance. Repentance means I hate my sin and I'm going to do whatever is necessary in the power of God to turn away from it. And the boy did. He took his phone in front of his youth pastor and dropped it in the glass of water right in front of him. It's done. It's ruined. Now he has to go home and tell his parents, I need a new phone. And here's why. And I can't have a smartphone because the temptation's too great. That is repentance. The boy cared more about his love for God than he did what other people thought of him. He cared more about pleasing God than he did about some pleasure that he had grown so enslaved to. That's repentance. And so we saw in the last chapter that Israel had been brought to a place where they too were saying, we are going to remove these gods and we're going to serve God alone. But here we have the scriptures, this pattern that continues to be present of sin, oppression, deliverance. This pattern where the people of Israel turn away in the last chapter towards these small gods. And now in chapter 8, they're turning away from God again their true king, and they're asking for an earthly king. Why? What happens? Well, let's be easy on the people of Israel for a minute. They have been led by God, no question. And God has provided for them a leader named Samuel. And as they're looking at Samuel's life, these are two things that they know that the text makes clear. Samuel's getting old. And as he's getting old, they're beginning to ask the question. And we're told it's the elders who are asking the question, who is going to lead us? It's a fair question. But as they ask the question, they're looking at what Samuel has done. And Samuel has put his two sons in place as judges. They're serving in a smaller area south called Beersheba. And they're wicked. 
Just like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who Samuel heard first from the God that he needed to confront Samuel, or sorry, Eli on his sons. Now, Samuel's own sons are taking from people. They're not being honoring to God. And so the Israelite elders are looking at this old man, Samuel, and they're looking at his sons saying, they can't be the succession plan, so what are we going to do? And in this moment of national crisis, in this moment of identity crisis, they have two choices. Number one, do what they have always been told to do. Look to God. Look to the true king. Look to the one who is the only true king. He has provided for you. He has fought for you. He has protected you. He has fed you. He has disciplined you. He has fill in the blank. Or they can set their eyes somewhere else. And that's what they do. They don't look to God. They don't bring these burdens to God. Instead, in the midst of this crisis, they look to their neighbors. And when they look to their neighbors, they see that all of their neighbors have a monarchy. All of their neighbors have an earthly king. All of their neighbors have someone that they can see. And so the people of Israel come to Samuel and they say in verse 5, Behold, you are old. That's not very nice. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge over us, to judge us, that means rule over us, like the nations. That's what they wanted. They didn't look to God. They looked to the neighbors. Why? What's underneath it? How could a people who had seen God do so much who had heard the stories of how God had moved them through the Red Sea, how God had conquered enemy after enemy. How could they come to this place simply of saying, who will our, our next earthly leader be and not look to God? Well, I think it's because of three things. They wanted something that was visible. They wanted something or someone that was measurable. And they wanted something or someone that was comprehensible. And that's what the neighboring monarchies promised. They could go to the borderline and look, or even past it, and look at the kingdoms. They're measurable. They're visible. They could hear and understand what one human king says to his nation. It's comprehensible. So in the sense of we want to be able to see our king. We want to be able to measure his army, his kingdom. We want to be able to understand the policies that he's putting place over us as he rules us. We are putting our security here. We want a king just like the other nations. And one elder or five elders or 15 elders, I don't know, took that message. It gained in momentum. And now they come before Samuel and they say, appoint us a king. They want something measurable. They want something comprehensible. They want something visible. In verse 6, Samuel, we're told, is upset. He's upset, displeased, because they've said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel does the right thing. 
In this moment when he is experiencing his own crisis, the people that he has been leading have told him he's old and that his sons aren't worthy to be the successors. He could easily keep his eyes focused on man. He could easily keep his eyes fixed on how can I convert these Israelite elders to see my way, but he doesn't. He goes before the Lord. And as he goes before the Lord, he prays and the Lord speaks. I'll go there in a minute in terms of what the Lord says. So let's talk about us. It's really easy to be rough on the elders of Israel. Yet right now, you, friend, are doing the same thing, just like me. Every day when I confront a crisis in my life, and the reason I say every day is because every day has some crisis in it, I have two choices initially. Look to God, listen to God, pray to God, wait for God, receive counsel from God, or I can set my eyes on something or someone that's measurable, comprehensible, and visible. Every day. If you want to know what the little king is that you're tempted to pursue, then simply ask this question. What crisis is burdening you right now? You have one. Is it the condition of our nation? Right now, we're about to have an election. What a profound opportunity for Christians to exercise their right to vote, to be informed by what the politicians believe, the candidates believe, to pray and ask the Lord to give you holy wisdom as to how you should vote, to listen and wait upon him to do so. It's really important that we vote. Our world is in disarray. Our country is a mess. It's so divisive. And you talk about listening, people aren't really listening to one another. It's very broken, isn't it? And so in the midst of that crisis, we have an opportunity as Christians to say, I'm trusting in the Lord. That doesn't mean I'm trusting in the Lord so I'm not voting, I'm not going to engage. But I'm trusting in the Lord because every other candidate is a little king. Even if they're Christians, they're little kings. I'm trusting in the Lord. And I'm trusting in the Lord and I'm praying for godly candidates. And I'm praying for candidates who are not godly to at least live godly. I'm praying for common grace in their lives. But my trust is in the one true king. I'm not fixing my eyes on any little king. But the temptation is to do that. Because our politics, our candidates, whoever that is for you, they're measurable. They're comprehensible. They're visible. You see, God, we're told in his word, and we confessed it this morning in our profession of faith, is not visible. His work is. His presence can be felt. The Holy Spirit lives in us. But he himself is not visible. One day we will see him. Our God, the word tells us, is incomprehensible. That doesn't mean we can't know anything about him. The Holy Spirit enables us to believe enough for salvation and to know how to live our lives. But God is beyond our comprehension. If you don't believe me and you think I'm making it up, read Psalm 139. God's ways are not our ways. They're, they're too amazing. They're beyond us. They're incomprehensible. God is not measurable. We love measurable. We love 
bank statements. We love titles. We love numbers. We love being able to give an account. You can't with God. God's power is immeasurable. It's omnipotent. It's all-powerful. God's love is immeasurable. How wide, deep, long, and high. Those in the Greek are perfect measurements, meaning you can't exhaust it. God's knowledge has no limits. In other words, all you can say about God's mind, about God's knowledge, is that he's omniscient. And what does that mean? There's nothing God can learn, ever, about whatever crisis you're facing. Yet, like the people of Israel, day after day after day, I have the choice. Am I going to look to the one who is immeasurable, all-powerful, all-knowing, incomprehensible, everywhere present, who can learn nothing about me or the situation I'm in, or am I going to look to little kings that I can measure, that I can say, even if he wins, he'll be in the office at the most eight years. If it's a different role, maybe longer. But he'll have to be voted on again, or she will. And they're not going to live forever. My king is eternal. The people of Israel were confronted with a national crisis. Samuel is getting old. He is going to go the way of men. He's going to die. His sons cannot be the successors. They're evil. Men, what are we going to do? Have you seen that kingdom? Have you understood that king? Have you seen the size of their army? That's what we need. And that's what they tell Samuel. They literally tell Samuel, it's, it's later in the passage, verse 19, after Samuel tells them what the king will do, they say, no, there should be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. That's the first problem. We want to be like others. Secondly, we want to be like the other nations that our king may judge us. That means rule over us. Go out before us and fight our battles. That's all understandable, isn't it? Except what they've already had is a God who gave them all of that. Who fought battles that were miraculous and mysterious. Who defeated enemies in ways that only God can. But in this moment of public crisis, of national crisis, they say, we want this because it makes sense. And I can see that king. And I can count his chariots. And it looks like we could have more chariots than he has chariots. It seems foolish, doesn't it? Do you know why? Because it is. And it's no less foolish day after day after day when just like you, I turn and seek to put my security in insecure little kings instead of the one true king. The warning is for us just as it was for them. And Samuel brings it. Why does Samuel bring the warning? Because he went to God, which was right. These people told me I'm old and my sons are not ruling as they should. They want a king. And God says to them in his profound wisdom, give them one. Let them have it. Give him a king. 
I think Samuel had to be shocked. Obey their voice, God says, and all that they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So let me be very clear. When you and I turn towards other gods, we're rejecting him. We're not losing our salvation, but we're rejecting him. The reason repentance is a good word is it's strong, and it means turn away from rejecting God and turn back towards him. We don't like the word repentance because we like to make adjustments. I'll adjust a little bit of my life. No, no, this isn't about adjustments. In fact, Satan would celebrate if you would just make adjustments. He is saying, turn back from rejecting God. Anything that you are putting your security in other than God is a little king. It's measurable. It might be your finances. It might be relationships. It might be work. It might be status. Whatever it is, when you come face to face with the crisis and you turn towards the little kings, you're rejecting God. You are essentially acting as if you were the people of Israel. When they were told what a king would do to them, they rejected his word and said, no, we want a king. And what was that word? This is amazing. I want you to take this bulletin home because the word's printed right here and it's easy to see. But I want you to watch what happens. Look with me at it. In verse 8, the Lord speaks of their rejection. Then in verse 10, Samuel tells the people of Israel all the words that the people were asking for as they were to get a king. And this is what he says. Look with me at verse 11. He says, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take. Now what I want you to do this afternoon is take a pen and underline in this bulletin or in your Bible how many times it says he will take. Because this is powerful. Israel is rejecting a God who has done nothing but given them everything they need. And they are turning to little kings who are going to do nothing but take from them. They're gonna he's going to take their sons. He's going to take their daughters. He's going to take the best of their crops. He's going to take their slaves. Do you see it? It's throughout. They're exchanging an allegiance to their true king who is a giving king and saying we want a measurable king, a visible king, a comprehensible king. And what they're going to realize is that king is going to measure. That king is going to measure their crops. That king is going to measure the young men. And he's going to take the best and put them in one place and take those that aren't the best and put them in another. But this king is going to take. They're exchanging that allegiance but God's still God. When God says, give them what they want, he isn't losing his sovereignty. God is willing for his name to be defamed in order for a greater glory to take place. And that greater glory is coming. As the monarchy is formed in this, there will be earthly kings. And those earthly kings are all going to be foreshadowing and pointing to the one perfect king, which is Jesus. And when Jesus is born of a virgin and comes upon this earth, this king of kings born from the Virgin Mary, which we'll be celebrating before long in Advent, 
what you see once again is this God, this king, who is a giving king. How giving? He's going to give his only begotten son so that his son may take all from you. Your sin. Your sin. For every time you know you shouldn't reject him, but you do. For every time you know you shouldn't look at that, but you do. For every time you fear man more than you fear God. And you want to be like your neighbor more than you want to be like Christ. For all of that, in you and in me and in all the world, the Father gives as king his son. And his son, who is King Jesus, our Redeemer, takes it all. And that king on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. He bows his head and dies. Three days later, that king is raised from the dead. He walks upon the earth, and then he ascends, not returning till the day that the Father sends him. And when he does, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Until that day, our king is reigning. He'll be reigning then too. And he's living to intercede on your behalf. And one of the things that Christ is continually praying for you is that you and me will hear his voice as the spirit moves. We'll sense the conviction towards the things that we have turned towards that are wrong, the wealth that we seek to put our security in, the popularity that we want our children to have, the material things that we think are ultimately going to make us happen, happy, politics that we think are going to change everything. Most of those are really good, aren't they? But the Lord is saying, only am I king. And in his grace, he receives us and he holds us and he purifies us and he sends us out, never alone. He's our king. Christian, you have a king. He's immeasurable, he's invisible. He's incomprehensible. What a cool king. Why would we ever choose the visible? Why would we ever choose to put our security in the merely fleshly comprehensible? Why would we trust in that which we can measure when the one who is immeasurable, the one who is incomprehensible, the one who is invisible lives inside us and reigns as our king whose father sent him because he's a giving God. Jesus, there's no greater motivation to turn than your glory and grace. This is so hard for us, Lord. And your word reveals that it has always been hard. God Almighty, have mercy on us and let us see 
that we can't turn on our own, but you long for us to turn and you give us everything that's necessary for that turn to take place. And let us see that that turn is life-giving and beautiful. Mysterious, yes, but life-giving. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.